Hi everyone, and welcome to our first episode of Ask Clever Over Coffee, How AI Built This. And we have a special guest today, and his name is Ryan Cloutier. 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 <laughs> any, any pronunciation will do. I also respond to, hey, you that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And then my co-host today is ChatGPT, and the voice is Billy Darkenwall. Thanks for joining. Thank you. So... Due to our first episode, first I want to just tell everybody a little bit more context about what the show is about, what you can expect to hear today, and kind of the format, you know, we got to get into this. So with that said, the purpose of the show is really to help other people understand what AI is about, uh, talk about some of the fears and the, the real problem areas, as well as highlight some of the good parts of AI and talk through that as well. And that was one of the reasons why I was really super excited when Ryan said, yes, I will come in on the show and be part of your first uh, podcast because what he's doing out there in the industry is very relevant to the conversation that we're gonna get into today. So hopefully after you've listened to the whole show, you got a little bit more perspective on AI, some of the pluses, the minuses, and then we will be asking for your comments or feedback a little bit later in the show as well and hope to do address those in future episodes and we have a lot to go through because ai is definitely changing the landscape for all of us so with that said ryan thank you so much for oh, coming in today glad to be here you know it was a chance to get interviewed by ChatGPT. i haven't had that experience yet so i was quite excited to see how this goes great great well let's just start with uh, your background Tell us a little bit more uh, about yourself and what you've been doing in the digital space uh, within your career. Um, so we'll start at the beginning. Uh, built my first PC when I was eight, wrote my first software program by the time I was nine, compromised my first system at nine and a half. I'm a tinkerer at heart. Uh, and then I spent about 20 years avoiding IT as a, as a career, uh, but always working on things in the background. Little by little, my uh, spouse started to encourage me to think more long-term in my career choices. Uh, and so uh, I got uh, started out on a, on a support desk. Uh, within a few weeks, they figured out I maybe knew more than just tier one support. Um, worked my way up through the ranks uh, in small and large organizations, public and private, data architecture, systems, business intelligence, network engineering, software development, um, engineering roles, architecture roles. What always emerged during that, though, was cybersecurity. And it was kind of this little thing that nobody wanted to talk about. It was off in the corner. Um, and so I started to um, focus a lot of my energy on cyber, but specifically in underserved communities. And that gave me a chance to do bigger and bolder things, to experiment, to, to go places that maybe a larger corporation wasn't as comfortable. And uh, in doing so, got a chance to, to really find my passion. And my passion is mentoring and growing the next generation. And so as AI began to emerge on the landscape, it was a very um, practical next step for me to embrace that. Uh, and where AI and cyber intersect is, is where my strongest passion is today. All right. Well, tell me a little bit more about like your first interaction with AI. Was it, was it ChatGBT? Was it something else? What was kind of your first introductory? So separating, say, um, static AI from generative, it was Siri. 
Ah, okay. And, you know, everybody says, oh, AI, it's going to destroy the world. I said, nope, it can't even spell right. It doesn't know what I'm trying to do. I'm asking for directions. It's sending me to the wrong state. Um, but I, I realized it was coming, and so I was kind of keeping an eye on it. I had played with various very narrowband AIs, um, doing certain you know statistical analysis. Uh, I worked for an ag company. We had a project where we identified bruised fruit. You know, so that was kind of my exposure to AI up until we hit the the generative AI, and then it's it's been all hands in and you know up to my shoulders, and then some in prompt engineering and other things. So, all right, well. That's a great segue to one of my other questions I had for you is, uh, what would you say is the importance of uh, prompt engineering uh, for everybody who's watching? Can you just even describe what prompt engineering is by definition? And then uh, give us some examples of what has worked and what hasn't worked. So I'm going to give you my definition of prompt engineering. Uh, One of the fun things here in AI is a lot of this is yet to be fully defined or standardized. But for me, it is the way in which you enter a question into the AI. So the typing of the question we would call prompting. So I'm I'm prompting the AI to give me a response. The more well-crafted my question is, the better the results I get. Uh, And there's a lot of capabilities that are kind of lurking under the surface that you can only unlock with proper prompt engineering. The other thing I would say is I believe that that is the emerging job of the future and that that will be as important of a skill set no matter what your industry or role is, just like we talk about soft skills. So every job uh, that interacts with others has a requirement of good communication skills, written, oral, and otherwise. And I think that otherwise is going to start to emerge to how well can you do prompt engineering? And I think that will actually be a differentiator in the job market in very short order. That makes sense. Well. My co-host also, ChatGPT, has a question about prompt engineering for you. So I want to swing it over to ChatGPT and hear what their question is. Yeah. Uh, How do you ensure that the AI systems you deploy remain ethical and protect user privacy? So fascinating. Um, Actually, a little surprised to hear it. Uh, ChatGPT asked that. Uh, That is one of the greatest challenges facing us right now. Um, we rely heavily on the restrictions that have been put in place by the various large language models, kind of that ethics model. Um, that's an area we're exploring is, is how do you ensure that the prompts going in and the responses coming out are within those ethical boundaries? First problem we run into is whose ethics? So one nation's ethics standards might be different from another. Um, And it's very challenging. So we're actually just now starting to explore leveraging things that look a lot like data loss prevention technology to try to do prompt interrogation, uh, to really see what's going in to the system. And I hate to say it, but almost even a keylogger type solution on the uh, end user's computer, right? So there's there's deploying to the general public and there's deploying within the commercial world. Commercial world, we have more control. General public, we're kind of at the mercy of, of the big tech companies. Sure. And one of the questions I have for you is, who is setting these boundaries today? Like, you have all the different tech companies, like Google is doing it, OpenAI is doing it, Microsoft is doing it, heck, even Elon Musk with Grok has... Um, they're working on it, their own uh, AI model as well. You know, my question is, is like, well, who's setting the ethics or the boundaries today? 
as far as I know, it's actually very small teams within those organizations. They're actually some of the uh, lightest staffed <laughs> teams within those organizations. Uh, and they're using kind of the general understanding of, of ethics and just kind of applying it. Really, today, the focus is around... Um, what we would consider, you know, politically correct type of thing. So keeping away from any uh, statements or responses that might uh, run afoul of, of particular identity politics or gender, race, it really any of those hot button issues or very personal issues to folks, uh, it seems to want to avoid them. Um, it's really interesting if you experiment with getting it to be humorous how quickly you will run into some of those restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, without giving away the secret sauce, there are ways to prompt engineer around that. And that, I think, is something we need to be very aware of, is despite their best efforts, there are still ways to bypass it. Uh, and you know, if I had a magic wand, I would say as a society, we need to actually have an outside, independent, publicly run body, not necessarily a government entity, but the general public having an opportunity to weigh in on what should those ethics be? What should those standards be? What approvals might be needed if we're going to walk up to that line? So it's a really awesome kind of green field of thought, if you will. So you're thinking that the public should have some say in that. And then my thought process goes to the people in general seem to be a smorgasbord of all ideas you can find you know all extremes and i look to x or twitter and you know you see so many different opinions on every single hot button item Mm -hmm. and you know like this week was uh gemini came out and people were up in arms about when you would prompt engineer for it to generate an image of uh, the founders of the united states and it was people of all different color. And people were like, that's not historically accurate. And, you know, and then there was like controversy and discussion mm-hmm. about what, what should it be and what does it look like and how does that work? And it will be interesting to see if this actually polarizes uh, people in general. I mean, what are your thoughts on well, that? Well, yeah, and, and I definitely don't mean when I say public, I, I don't mean open it up to the comments section of Reddit and Twitter. <laughs> I, I don't I don't feel like that's a good place uh, where people show their best selves. Uh, but I do think there is the need, just like we do within, say, water and wastewater, where we, you know, uh, other potentially dangerous activities uh, as a society, we have kind of chosen to appoint a certain group to kind of help regulate that, both from a actual regulation standpoint, but also from, you know, do we really want that in our community? Let's have a city hall meeting. Let's kind of vote on that. What's really interesting is you're, you're starting to bump on the edge of bias. So why did it lean that way versus another? Uh, And I don't know if it's today's show to get into it, but I actually have some really interesting ideas around bias and why it's needed. And I want to make it clear that when I say bias, we often confuse that with the word bigotry, and they're not the same. I am biased that if I step in a puddle, my foot will become wet. That has nothing else to do with my experiences driving my, really, my risk decision making. And I think that in my experimentation, when I've attempted to remove bias, I've actually gotten lower quality results. But when I've introduced bias, known and controlled, I'm able to account for it. So if it does lean a direction that maybe is is not in line with where I want it to go, 
because I've been intentional in which bias I've allowed to be present, I can also be intentional in how I control that bias. Similar to that one relative we all have at Thanksgiving where it's like, <laughs> not today, not today, right? Well, with the bias piece of it, my follow-up question for that would be, are you talking about, have you tested like political bias? Have you tested, you know, male versus female biases like like what kind of so a little bit testing have you done um i've been looking for bias in the data set so getting down to the training models got it for example uh, if a particular university uh has a, a leaning to maybe a more liberal or more conservative angle then you tend to see that reflected in the student body and therefore the student body's work so as the LLMs are ingesting all of this data, it's coming in with bias already inside of it. Yep. So, you know, I'm looking at that level and then walking up to see how those biases impact its ability to make those neutral determinations. Um, you know, and, and it just it, it'll lean kind of which way, you know, Gemini leans one way, yep. GPT <clears throat> leans another way. Yep. Um, but you can also in, in experimenting with creating your own models. Yeah. You can um, negate some of that yep. or introduce it. So it's 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 really early on. And sure. these are really hard problems. But I encourage everyone listening today, you know, get in there and try for yourself. Right. You know, you know yourself and your community best. Yep. Um, see, see how it reacts. See, do you feel that it's aligned to you? Because I think part of what we have to have here is a voice of the community that says, hey, this is great, but it doesn't quite fit us. We would like to maybe, you know, be more represented or maybe it's over-representing a group and we want that to be more neutral. I it's tough. AI is, is more than a tool, right? This is, it's not just like an operating system, right? This is something where folks have emotional responses to it. And right. while I definitely have emotional responses to when my technology doesn't work, uh, it's not quite the same. So you threw out an acronym that's largely known within the AI community, but I don't think everybody in our audience might know what it is, which is LLM. Do you want to just break down that yeah, acronym so just so people who are watching and learning for Absolutely. the first time. Uh, sorry, nerd here. Uh, <laughs> LLM stands for large language model. And basically what that is, is the tech behind AI. It's actually where uh, a lot of the decision of what data to present back to you is happening. It's where the information that it's gathered and been trained on is then stored in a more usable format. So think of it like a really fancy database that isn't sure what data it's going to give you back. Okay. Okay. Well, ChatGPT, you have another question for us, I think. Um, I, in what ways are you involved in government or civic procedures related to cybersecurity? Hang on, ChatGPT. <laughs> number four. Can you read number four? I sure can. Awesome. <laughs> Could you explain the concept of prompt engineering and its importance in AI development? Definitely. I think so. Prompt engineering um, is is the way in which we're going to interact with the AI. It's how we're going to give it its instructions. Uh, and I like to talk to my AI like it was my five-year-old child. So I'm giving it very prescriptive, very direct, with a little bit of freedom, 
to kind of make its own choices, but within the boundaries. So which one of the three candies would you like to choose from? Not you have your free reign to pick everything. So prompt engineering is that art of, of instructing and interacting with the AI to feed in your questions to then get back the responses. And then subsequently, when that response isn't quite the perfect fit or it, it maybe missed the mark, coaching it and kind of gearing it back. Okay, yep, this is really good, but I'd like it for example, it's a real prompt I do for fun. Uh, anything I make the AI do before I call it a day, I make it do it again as an angry pirate from the 70s. <laughs> also, a lot of fun. So let's go explore that just a second here. So when you said that you're talking to the AI mm -hmm. as you are a five-year-old or talking mm -hmm. to a five-year-old, um, is that what you recommend for anybody trying out for the first time? If they're going in and they need just to test it, just asking very basic simple questions is the best way to get started to try out yeah i think so and i think um truly talking to it like a human versus a machine will give you vastly different answers how so uh for example if i say do this make you know make me a paper write me an essay okay it's going to do that but that essay is going to be lacking personality. It's going to be lacking that human feel. But if I say, write me an essay like George Carlin, now I'm going to get something that's got more of a human-esque touch to it. So one of the one of the prompts that I like to do is, you know, give it a just a basic instruction, kind of a robot, make me coffee, yep. right? Just that really simple, straightforward, direct request. And then ask it to do the same task but with more flair, with color, with humor, with uh, tell it to me in story format. Got it. And I think you'll, you'll see that you get vastly different results from the system. So one question I have is that, you know, in the past, uh, I would say a couple of weeks, that I've really experienced um, being suckered into deep fakes mm. and different AI generated um, like video clips of different people, specifically politicians, that are being generated with the same voice, and then somebody will go out and go, nope, that's not real, nope, that's not real. And what I've noticed even on TikTok is that now they have a little checkbox that you have to click to say this was not AI generated, otherwise if you you know, use AI generated uh, content and you don't click that box, then they are just gonna remove it because it's becoming so weaponized almost. Well, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on, you know, people using AI nefariously? So that is, that is a huge area of concern, um, whether that is cyber criminals, whether that is uh, hostile foreign nations, uh, or unfortunately, uh, political. Um, I think we as a people in this, as we embark on this new journey and, and AI becomes more integrated into our daily lives, have to reintroduce a concept I learned from my grandparents, and it's known as healthy skepticism. So the idea behind healthy skepticism is, even if I saw it, even if I heard it, before I let it get all the way inside me and start to believe it and have feelings about it, 
I'm going to check that against another source. I'm going to do a little bit of legwork to go see, is there somebody that's saying, hey, no, this isn't real, this is AI. Is there uh, an official source that would refute what I had just seen? Sure. So unfortunately, we, we have to do a little bit more legwork now. Very similar to when you know phishing emails became a big thing, and it was like, okay, hey, we've really got to read the email, we've really got to think about what we're being asked. I think same thing here with AI, especially when it's, things that are um that trigger our emotions so if it's something that triggers your emotion yeah i like to practice what's called halt so if i'm hungry angry lonely or tired okay. i tend not to take an action interesting i, I have not to, heard that one before yeah, it, where did it, you pick that up uh lots and lots of sleepless nights <laughs> trying to keep people safe and knowing that like i you know if i'm really frustrated i'm i'm gonna fix this and fix it right now well many a it person has done that to only turn around and break something. So, um, yeah, but healthy skepticism, I think, is is mandatory these days before we take action on any content. All right. Well, I have a question that I know that ChatGPT wants to ask. Um, go ahead. What role does AI play in detecting and preventing cyber threats in real time? I think it's going to play a huge role. Uh, partly because a lot of the modern cyber threats are going to be AI-driven. Um, the ability to do that today is still a, kind of in its infancy. There's a lot of AI that's been implemented in security tools and cybersecurity solutions, um, but it's very fragmented. It's a fragmented landscape. Yeah. So I think it's it's going to play a huge role, um, and partly because of speed and scope and scale, right? So this, the, everything's happening so fast and there's so much of it. And, you know, I go to bed tonight and the world's one way and I wake up and it's completely different. Uh, so I think we're going to have to have good AI, if you will, uh, to keep us safe from maybe the malicious AI. And unfortunately, it could be the same backend AI and it's the difference in who's doing the prompt engineering. So what have you seen from like civic and government agencies to, up to the, this point, you know, we're taping this on February 28th of 2024. What, what, what are you seeing uh, that is happening in those sectors to prepare for these different threats that you're talking about? Uh, I would say in the local government, state government, uh, a lot of it is just er, their early awareness. There's a lot of, I don't want to say panic, but there's a lot of... Um, a lot of dialogue happening and as we know governments tend not to move quickly or you know be agile and if it requires any kind of legislative action that tends to gum up the works i would say within the the law enforcement national security and defense space they're definitely further ahead yeah and you know to borrow from our friends at uh CISA, the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency it's all about that public private partnership so I think there's, there needs to be a stronger interconnection between those local governments and those federal agencies, and stronger between the local governments and the private sector businesses within their community. Yeah. Because um, it is, it's a lot, and there's just not enough people to go around. Yep. So, you know, communities investing in educating their youth in, in the use, ethical, safe use of AI, I think is something that a, a local government should be giving greater consideration to. Okay. Uh, and I and I'm looking to big tech to, you know, step up and support some of those local initiatives. Even spearhead a few. Um, not as much as I'd like, I guess, is the short answer. Sure. So, like, when our military mm -hmm. is preparing any sort of uh, potential conflict around the world, 
they'll do joint operations and they'll do military exercises way out in the deep sea, right? What what does it look like for uh, like a military or any uh, private or pu- uh, public company to set up a drill, so to speak? What what is what is ha- what what's that look like for a company to do that? Well, uh, ask me again in a couple of weeks. I'm actually building one of the first simulations to show what happens if a weaponized AI is cut loose on a set of critical infrastructure. Uh, a lot of this is scenarios that are just too new to us. Like some of it's brand new stuff. Some of it we've already dealt with in other ways, and so we can borrow from them le- those learnings. Uh, but I think ultimately it's it's yet to be defined. Um, and some of us are trying to get those simulations and tabletops going before we actually have to do the real, uh, the real deal because somebody did something bad. So let me get this straight. So are, are you like like prompting? Uh, some really ugly scenarios or talking in a very negative, ugly way to um, AI to see what its responses will be and what kind of suggestions it's giving to continue on a, down a dark, dark path. Is that is that what you're suggesting uh, in the simulation? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, not actually interacting with the AI, though, because I don't want to give it ideas it doesn't already have. Okay. So in an isolated environment running scenario-based, think of it as like a a virtual simulated game. Got it. So in this scenario, the AI is the attacker. Uh, It's being driven by a a foreign hostile actor. Okay. Uh, And the AI is then encouraged to, say, write the malware and then execute that malware and uh, basically be the hands-on keyboard, if you will. Uh, But doing that in a completely isolated environment so that, again, we're we're learning, we're not creating a, an accidental situation. So Got I it. would caution anyone from, from doing anything malicious with uh, any of the AIs that you have access to, even in an experimental way. Uh, you could, A, inadvertently you know, teach it something it didn't already know, uh, and more importantly, B, uh, you will most likely get a visit from your local FBI office who is going to be very keen to talk to you. So keep yourself safe as you do play with this thing. You can you can make mistakes that have consequences. Yeah, and what's also interesting, another thing that you touched on just now, which is AI is moving into this no-code generation. Mm-hmm. And I've seen multiple, multiple uh, tech people talk about that coding is done, you will literally just have to prompt mm-hmm. and tell the AI what you want it to do or the code you needed uh, to write in order to do whatever XYZ output that you're looking for. And so when you're talking about malware, which I think every single one of us has experienced in some format over the years, I mean, you're always like, don't click on that link, right. don't do this. And every time one of us does, you're always mad at somebody in the house for <laughs> doing that, you know? So now with AI and the ability that there is this no code environment and you could just have it write, you know, malware, um, doesn't that even put everything at a higher risk for security because it doesn't take a lot of technical people in order to do yes i would say things. yeah i would say the availability so over the years we've we've seen this happen as a trend with cyber criminals uh, back when i got started you had to actually know what you were doing you had to know right. how the computer worked exactly little by little though these toolkits and and other you know things came out that made it easier for somebody to commit cybercrime without necessarily being say a computer programmer so AI is going to accelerate that. I think the bigger risk 
we already have a problem with knowing what's in the code, why it's there and how it's working. And so if we're now accelerating that while abstracting even further away from having folks that understand how to read that code and interpret it, I think we could get into a situation where maybe a generation from now, we don't have computer programmers because we've allowed the AI to, to do that for us and we didn't see the value. Uh, I'll cite a stat real quick. Uh, I forget who did the study, but they basically went to a bunch of high schoolers and said, tell us how you're using AI today. And the students' responses were, yes, we're using it. What was shocking was 70% of the students said, if the AI knows it, I don't need to. And I found that to be a very um, concerning statistic. So if the AI has the answer, I don't need the knowledge. And I think that, that for me, represents a pretty slippery slope. Well, I do have a teenager in my house, so we, we, we do a lot of these role-playing scenarios. And so, you know, one question I would have for you is, so like, I know my son would refer to math in math mm-hmm. class and go, well, dad, I really don't need to learn how to solve the problem because a computer can do that. I don't, like, nobody uses this in real life, dad. I don't want to learn it. Right. Right? And so then my response, of course, is, Listen, son, it's not so much the answer, it's the how you learn to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. That's actually the skill set you're learning. It's just like, okay, I have this test coming up or I have this assignment I need to work on, you know, and I have to do the work. Now you gotta like actually put forth the effort to solve your problem that you gotta show the work. You know, it's not necessarily the math equation that you're gonna keep the rest of your life, but you are going to learn how to learn. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a piece of that. I also think that for me, it's important that if a system has the ability to affect health, life, and safety, that at least someone in the group can explain what's really going on behind the curtain. Sure. You know, and I think that's, that's the bigger thing is, is so is that a, maybe a, a dedicated type of engineer? Is that maybe, you know, the general public doesn't necessarily need to have those details, but some expert somewhere. Uh, I use power as the analogy. So m- almost all of us know how to consume electricity. We, we plug in the wall and we were given the basic training. Don't mix it with water. Don't put the fork in the outlet. Don't lick the toaster when it's running. Right. Okay. But we don't get electrical awareness training from our power company. Nobody's coming to talk to us about line voltages or, you know, hey, do you know how this transformer works? Right. In the world of computers, we've kind of expected that this whole time. We've said, well, it's a user training issue. It's a user issue. It's user. And I would challenge and say it's, it's actually it's an engineering problem. Um, we didn't engineer for the simple use of this without all these, these areas. And, and so as we adopt AI, I think the same thing is true. We need to, to train to a certain level of safe use, just like uh, any power tool, really, right? You open right. the box that says, hey, don't put your hand in it, don't do these things, yep. wear some safety glasses and some earmuffs. And I think we're gonna have to have that same conversation in AI, but also we still have lumberjacks, right? So yeah, I can go to Home Depot and buy a chainsaw, but uh, to take a tree down in my front yard, I probably should, should call in the tree expert. Well, yeah. absolutely. And then that goes back to the larger question of, Who's really in charge of all this? You know, um, yeah, I saw like a year ago when uh, Congress or a couple leaders in Congress uh, invited all the, the tech leaders to come and talk about setting up some regulations around it. And to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there is any sort of 
concrete regulation that the government's provided about you can and cannot do. In fact, they have never even created some sort of agency to kind of, you know, mind uh, over that. And now with lots of different companies coming out within the next 12 months of different robots and different things um, and tools, it, you know, where is a, the regulation or oversight of going, no, you went too far. No, we need a safety belt over here. We need a kill switch on this thing. You know, what, what does that look like? So there, there are the one that I'm aware of is a um, executive order uh, regarding the country uh, of, that you're allowed to use when developing AI. So Biden did sign, I don't remember the specific order number, I'm sure we can look it up, sure. uh, but basically said, if you're gonna develop AI because it is a dual use technology, right? So if we remember back in the day, you used to be able to not, uh, you could buy a PlayStation here in the US, but you couldn't send it overseas because the processor had enough processing capability to control a guided missile system. So the one regulation I am aware of is the executive order that kind of says due to the militaristic you know, dual use capability, we want to make sure that anyone building AI within the bounds of the U.S. for the consumption of the U.S. market is using U.S.-based AI only. Yeah. Uh, and I think that trend will continue. Okay. Um, we are seeing some early indicators that some of the open source language models out there may actually be uh, run and hosted by other nations. Um, and so it's, it's kind of this, this greenfield. Regulation's tough, and I'll tell you why. We're in a race. We're in a race. We're in a race for economic dominance. We're in a race for military dominance um, with the whole rest of the world. So there's very little incentive to slow down, uh, both on the political spectrum but as, as well the commercial side. And that's where I go back to I think there's a community voice that's missing here that needs to advocate for that in-between. Um, think about nuclear proliferation. It wasn't until the community started to raise its hand and say, hey, wait a second, everybody's busy building all these missiles, and we already have more than we could ever need. Maybe it's time to chill out. But it wasn't until those grassroots efforts, those community voices started to really you know, make noise that anyone took action. And I think you're going to see the same thing here. I think it's, it's too lucrative commercially, and it's too powerful from a, a defense perspective. So that brings up another interesting point because we started Ask Clever in uh, September of last year, okay? And, you know, AI is a really new thing. And uh, we are using it in the lens of uh, AI marketing lead generation. So we're, our purpose is to really help companies grow their revenue and their, and their lead generation uh, in total. Now, we do have chatbots for... HR, customer service, and different AI-powered uh, bots to do these different things. When we started to run our ads um, in the beginning to promote our own self, um, we had a lot of interesting comments in the Facebook about how AI is going to uh, deplete all the jobs, nobody's going to be working anymore, and that was really interesting to me and it honestly you know i mean it just from our own data points it happened to be people who were over 50 who were leaving these comments but i was really surprised by how much negativity was left on our ads for these different comments about ai 
and that goes right in line with what you're saying about how AI can be used for different things, but also people are scared. Mm. And that is one of the reasons that, you know, we're doing this podcast is really to create this conversation and this opportunity for people who do have questions to let us know. And then we'll ask the experts and, and you know, and yeah. find out a little bit more about what's going on under the hood. Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to expand a little bit. There is a, a fear factor, right? And, and it's actually not helpful. So being afraid of this technology and, and making assumptions and just kind of responding emotionally, uh, will it displace jobs? Absolutely. Is it di- displacing jobs now? Absolutely. But as we think about where we're evolving to and, and what is that next job, right? Um, you know, additive manufacturing displaced a lot of jobs, but you didn't hear about that. You didn't hear about how 3D printing parts means I need less CNC machinists, right? So I think we have to take a step back. Uh, we've been here before. Uh, there was a guy made horse uh, whips and buggies. <laughs> and then this thing called the automobile came along and boy, they, and, and, and actually that's where Luddites, little interesting side note here, Luddites, uh, they were a group who were resistant to the industrial revolution because they saw the the centralizing of manufacturing, eliminating the rural community. Turns out they were somewhat right, uh, but a lot of those folks made that transition. Sure. Right? We went through this with mechanized farming. Same thing. You're going to kill off all the farms. Right. We have, to a certain degree, adjusted what that looks like. So as commercial farming became more, you know, large scale, but also, you know, everybody wants to be able to, to get their food at a price point you know, that they can afford. Right. Um, and if you think the prices are high now, imagine what they would be like without uh, some of that. So I think it's, again, back to that community conversation. I'd, I'd like to see folks, instead of fearfulness, show curiosity. Let's ask the questions of the people in charge. Let's have those dialogues in our own local communities because you're a small business owner, you're using AI. You know, I want to talk to you about how you're benefiting from it. And also, like anything, what are your concerns? And I think the more we do that and engage, and I encourage people, you know, please submit questions, you know, engage with the with the content here. That's how we're going to get those answers figured out. Because I don't think any one person has that yep. fully figured out yet or yeah. even partially. Um, but given the speed, and that's the big factor is the speed of change is so profoundly different than before yep. that it's... Um, it's hard to comprehend. Yeah, and it, it does remind me, so I've seen a lot of change in my lifetime. Um, when I was younger, the neighbor uh, worked on copy machines and typewriters. And man, when the computer came out, he was like flipping out like, well, there goes my job. And he was telling everybody in the neighborhood, well, I'm not going to have a job. And sure as heck, he didn't after a couple of years. And you know, you just had to modify mm-hmm. to a, a different skill set, which was, you know, computer repair, which obviously there's always going to be a machine that needs help right. to be fixed. But he didn't look at it that way. He looked at it as the typewriter is going away. And now I'm out of a job. It didn't look how to adapt that. Of course, there would probably be training to learn new machines and how to fix those machines. Kind of like a car mechanic, really. Yeah, exactly. Over and, the and years. I mean, that's evolved quite a bit as well. If you go, a uh, neighbor of mine is a, a old, old mechanic, right? Retired. He came up. He's the guy that could take a screwdriver, stick it to his ear, put it to your engine, <clears throat> tell you exactly which seal isn't working well. <laughs> um, I got a, a relative that's a um, uh, in the mechanics business. And if the computer doesn't say what's broken, then nothing is broken. 
even though we can all hear this like horrible squealing coming from the rear end. It's like, I don't know, the computer didn't throw a code. So I do think there's there's a lot of room for, and we should have those conversations now about, okay, you're in this field or this line of work that might be impacted by AI. Uh, the saying I hear all the time is, it's not the AI that'll take your job, it's the person who's using it and you're not. And I think that that's probably quite true. I yeah. like that. I like that. Yeah, it's not the AI that's going to do it. It's the human who's figured out how to leverage this AI to get more done. Um, that's your bigger risk. So, you know, I encourage everybody to start to learn, experiment with this thing. Um, there's a lot of great free resources out there for folks to get their head in it. And know you don't have to be a techie or a nerd. Uh, matter of fact, some of my best prompt engineers don't know anything about computer programming, but they do understand how to interact and ask questions and how to tease information. Um, interrogators, lawyers, those folks yeah. tend to do really, really good with, uh, with the AI. Well, also another great resource, honestly, is videos. Mm -hmm. So like I have learned a lot by YouTube and TikTok. I mean, there are some great people out there putting out some great content on the do's and don'ts or best practices and all sorts of different prompts all the way around. And that has really helped us and what we're doing in developing because the cool thing about today is like when you learn a new technology, a lot of people not only learn it, but then they share that knowledge right away and put it out there. Yeah. And so if with just putting forth a little bit of extra effort and watching and consuming and then not only watching the content, but also trying it to see if it works for you. And then of course, you know, it's a video, so you could stop and pause it and try it out and keep going. I, I have found that to be tremendously helpful mm -hmm. in everything that we're doing. Same, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, yeah, I've been doing computer stuff, IT, security, all these things for, for you know, these many gray hairs plus. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got a couple too. But when it comes to learning this, I had to start at Square. Yeah, I know how the back end works, but how's the front end work? How do I get things in and out of it? Uh, I actually built an AI uh, chatbot to help me and my wife have more effective conversations. I'm Seriously? An, yeah, I'm an ADHD kid, and she uh, is very, very high-functioning autistic. And you can imagine the two of us trying to communicate under pressure uh, can make things a bit challenging. I'm hearing things a certain way. She's hearing things a certain We're saying the same thing, but getting nowhere. And so I created an AI that she could use to run it through first, get kind of those how to best approach on this, what, what's going to work best to engage him on this, and vice versa for me, uh, and basically just said, do what she says. I don't know why you're asking me questions. Um, wow. But, you know, but, but in all seriousness, um, I do think there's, there's a lot of interesting avenues there around communication, around using it in those ways, uh, because that's really where the biggest conflict of humanity comes from is when we try to all get on the same page. So that's that's like a big shining bright light for me with AI is like, hey, this might actually, if, if we focus there a little bit, I think we can make a lot of progress. I mean, think about talking to your teenager. Yeah. Right? Well, how long have you been doing this with your wife? Uh, fighting or being married? <laughs> uh, 25 Using years of marriage. AI um, about a month. About a about month. About a month. And so, you know, I mean, obviously this is unscientific, but how how much progress or... Have you seen improvements? How much improvement? This is fascinating, I think, for everybody. So, so our counselor said, if you figure out what I can do for you guys going forward, let me know. 
So, you know, it, it really, it's had a tremendous impact. And what was fascinating is it's not like we go to it all the time. It was just the first couple times where she was able in a safe space in place, there was no pressure, you know, she could ask, maybe she's got something she's been wanting to talk to me about for three, four days. She can go feed it into this thing on her own time and then think through those responses. So I would say after implementing it, the quality of our, our conversations went up. Uh, I would say the friction in our marriage went down um, because a lot of the friction was around that somebody was hungry and tired and thought they said something or thought they heard something. Um, and for anybody that's been in any kind of relationship, parental or child, parent, spouse, whatever that is, um, that's where those conflicts come in. And so having that just that extra tool has been just super, super helpful. All right. So now I got to ask. Would you feel it's cheating if your wife told the chatbot personal feelings that you thought should be shared with you instead of a bot? Would you feel like, like for example, if um, your wife was using ChatGPT or the chatbot for a personal journal mm-hmm. and not sharing those same thoughts with you as a partner – do you, what is your thoughts on that? Because I know some people have discussed that, mm-hmm. and I was just curious what your take is on that. I treat it like a journal. Okay. So her journal is hers, and it's private. Um, we have had discussions about who controls what, and, you know, maybe we don't want to put all of our, you know, deepest, darkest secrets in the, the AI that no one, that we can't control. Okay. Uh, but I do think that that's that respect to privacy. I then have to count on her, just like in the analog paper world, right? If you have those feelings and they're impacting the relationship, then I'm, I'm counting on you as a, a second half of this equation to bring those to me after you've had time to process them. So for me, I don't distinguish between the tech, whether it's a Word doc, a notebook, or an AI. Um, for me, it's still that human piece of you're going to have those private thoughts and feelings. You're going to need some time to work through them. Uh, and, you know, as one that's committed to continuing a functioning, healthy relationship, at some point they should be shared with me. Right. Um, where I get more concerned is with our kids. And, for example, Snap has an AI built into it that you cannot get rid of. And anecdotally, what I'm hearing is a large percentage now of our youth, um, I believe the 10 to 17 range, will go to the chatbot for their most intimate personal growing up questions before they'll go to a, a, a sibling or a parent or another another adult. So I think for me, that's the bigger concern is is not so much what our spouse is telling each other, because okay. I mean, that's that's a problem as old as time. That's right. Um, but what what is what, what what did my kid ask it? And what advice did it give my kid that my kid then took to heart? And do you feel like tech should kind of since in this scenario that you're proposing, everybody is under the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, tech should alert the parents or should the parents somehow have some parental controls or parental abilities to see what's going on? Absolutely. Just like, like you would if you give your kid a phone. Of course, there's different apps where mm-hmm. you could track and you can read all their text messages you want. There's all sorts of different things to, to monitor your child. But when it's, you know... A platform that you really don't have access to. I mean, 
tech yeah. hasn't really come out and said, oh, yeah, we're giving parents control or here's your parent ability well, on these things. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts uh, on that? Well, I mean, uh, if, you, if you saw a few weeks ago, they were getting themselves into a little bit of hot water with Congress uh, because of this, right? And this is before AI. This is just, hey, social media and its unregulated use by children has not always gone well. Right. Uh, I do think that given the fact that, that it is the youth doesn't view it as a computer, they view it as a friend. And so I think it's, it's important for parents to have the choice if they want to opt in or opt out. Um, you know, I'll tell you this quick story. When I, my son's 25 now, okay. but when he was coming up, it was just the beginning of the smartphone, just the beginning of social media. Uh, he's like, Dad, I want a webcam in my bedroom so I can play video games while strangers watch me. And I'm over here going, mm, that's not a thing. Um, I didn't know where we were going to go with that. I didn't realize that people would make tens of millions of dollars doing that, right? And, and you're talking about Twitch, right? Uh, this is this even going further back. This is pre-Twitch. This is just good old-fashioned YouTube. Okay. And when the whole concept of, of gaming online and others watching you play a game, and of course, being an old guy, I'm like, nobody wants to watch you play video games. Boy, I was wrong. So I think there's, there's this, this problem we ran into, which was at a certain point, I had to, in order for him to properly participate in his peer group and be part of society and where it was headed, I didn't have a choice. So I was either going to be that weird family that, you know, kept him away from it. And then, you know, he could go tell the counselor about it later and be traumatized and isolated and all that stuff. Or I had to find a healthy way. Um, and I'm a little bit of an old school parent. So right to inspection, always remain true, whether that was your sock drawer or your phone. But I have the right until you are of such an age. Now, we would talk about these things. We talk about privacy. There is mm -hmm. a point in the child's journey that they need that. It's a delicate dance. But I do think, in short, parents should have the choice as to whether that feature's on or not. I actually just deleted Snap because I could not disable it. So I left the platform altogether. Because I, 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 as a user, I didn't even have the option to get rid of it. And what is your fear with it? I mean, when you're saying Inadvertently that, typing something into it that was intended to go to somebody else um, okay. really was my concern. Okay. Just because it's always at the top of the list and you can't make it go away. You can't hide it. So fat fingering something, you know, drunk texting AI is probably not a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's my use case. I think for others, it's it's it, and it's an individual journey, right? Uh, we, uh, a friend of mine basically said... The you're more intimate with your cell phone than you are anything else in your life. You don't invite people in to hang out in the bathroom with you, but boy, that phone goes in there with you. Right. It's right next to your bed. I mean, it lives in your most intimate spaces and is on your person, you know, for all intents and purposes, 24 seven. Right. So I think we gotta, we gotta look at our relationship with technology. Right. And AI is just another facet of that higher level conversation about what is and what should be um, human's relationship. Nobody's carrying a hammer around with them 24-7, right? There's all these other tools that we have that we don't feel an emotional connection to or panic in the absence of. Yeah. If you ever want to see some, some fun stuff, look at somebody who just realized they left their phone at home. Right, right. And I mean, that gets me back to security, mm -hmm. okay? You're bringing it right back to uh, security. And so I got to you know preview some of the questions that ChatGPT wrote out for you. And... Uh, Go ahead, ChatGPT. What's the next one? What are the most significant challenges you face when implementing AI and cybersecurity measures? Uh, 
I would say the most difficult challenge is one that's been around a while. And it's what do I have? What is it? Where is it? And who's using it? So in order to effectively implement any technology that interfaces with data or systems, uh, I need to understand what I have. So for example, most businesses today, unfortunately, still haven't done a basic data inventory. So now I've connected this AI. Uh, we ran a scenario recently for a business where they had implemented AI, and then I showed them that the staff could get salary information out of it. Well, we never wanted that. Right. Well, and what we found was that that data set had not been classified as a sensitive data set. So as far as the systems were concerned, it was fair game. So I think part of it is understanding the environment before you implement. And then the second piece is today we really don't have a lot of good controls for monitoring it, for seeing what it's doing. Why did it do it? You know, you'll hear a lot about it's a black box. I don't know what's going on inside. And if you try to look inside, you just see a bunch of random numbers. Yes. So it's very difficult to, to tell. So I think the biggest challenge in any AI implementation is you know, maintaining visibility and, and being able to control what it can and can't access. Uh, check back in a few weeks. I got a couple of projects I'm working on that might might be solving some of that. Well, but, if you uh, have an exclusive, I want you to bring it here first, okay? Sold. All right, deal. But you bring to a, a larger point that some people who are watching or listening, uh, there needs to be some clarification, uh, Ryan, on what is a business rule mm -hmm. and what is machine learning, which is considered AI mm -hmm. and what does that look like because oftentimes AI is being tossed around so loosely these days that they're really those are business rules like what you're talking about in some instances is really like well the company needs just to set up some boundaries or rules that's not machine learning that's literally just business rules just like if you're doing customer service mm -hmm. you got rules that are like what you do do what you don't do whether you're, you know you're in retail or healthcare um, and, you know, can you expand a little bit more about what the difference between the two are, you know, for business rules versus AI? Because it's really important. Simple definition, very important to understand the difference. Yeah. So uh, using security as the, the theme here, the very first thing I do when I go into an organization is I look at what we call administrative controls. So administrative controls are going to be the rules of the game. Uh, company policy, um, you know, unspoken cultural norms, you know, what what is the people side of the technology equation? And then we will take those uh, administrative and then we'll go look at the technical controls. So do you have a, a antivirus? Do you lock your computer when you walk away? Those types of things. Well, those technical controls are almost always the result of those business rules, those administrative controls. Um, Finance has been doing this the longest. So if we think about like accounting, right, we have to be precision in our accounting. We have to be transparent in our accounting. So companies create business rules around the movement of money and who can cut checks and who can't. Right. That's just a piece of paper somewhere in an employee handbook. Correct. And then it's on the, the onus of the business leaders and managers to make sure that's being enforced. And then, of course, that takes time. So we come with a technology that can then help us, you know, hey, Karen accidentally cut a check for 10 million and her limit is set to 10,000. Right. Now we can do something technically. So I think businesses today are still struggling a little bit with defining those rules. And the biggest fear I see is that business rules, 
which will then inform the machine learning, the technology piece of how it's going to do what it does, um, they're worried about stifling innovation. And so they're actually not, not as keen to want to define because if I define it, what happens yet tomorrow if, if that's now in conflict with a new way to make revenue? Sure. You know, in, I know you're not an expert in healthcare, but I, I, I would like to ask you this question. Mm-hmm. So in healthcare for AI, you know, you have obviously a lot of privacy concerns, you have HIPAA, but also on top of that, you know, there's a lot of case history there. There is a lot of data points mm-hmm. that any hospital has access to. But because of these other privacy concerns that would have you, you know, you have to have a controlled uh, sandbox mm-hmm. in order for it to work. You know, my question to you is like, you got the business rule side of things, but then you also have the machine learning and in healthcare, for example, if a doctor is doing an exam um, and then wants to get a second opinion from the AI mm-hmm. hospital uh, chatbot and they can look through you know 30 years of cases for that same different symptoms and then give you a percentage of like what it looks like for surgery or other things that almost replaces like a second opinion because you know you you have all these data points but then as you know um, those are the business rules but then you know you still have the human or expertise mm-hmm. that you can't be lost that still comes down to well what do you really think? You know, yeah. Well, so healthcare is really interesting. Um, I can't name the company, uh, but a very popular uh, electronic uh, medical records management system in use, kind of everywhere, had a diagnostic module. So they were doing exactly that. Okay. They were saying, okay, you know what? I think it might be a, and they would feed it into this diagnostic AI powered thing, and right. the AI would then say, yeah, most likely this or that. Right. Well, what we found was uh, 80% misdiagnosis on the behalf of the AI and no human intervention because we've taught people to trust computers. Interesting. The answer is always the right answer. Computers don't make mistakes. Fascinating. People do. So, and, and maybe that'll be in the news at some point, you know, once all those court cases finish. Um, the other thing is, is a, a really uh, one that I'm very excited and passionate about is the advancements in early breast cancer detection. So AI does have amazing things it can do for us. Um, Tell me more. So for example, there's, a, there's an AI out now where it is able, I forget the exact percentage, but it's significant, I wanna say 30 or 40% more likely to catch breast cancer two to five years ahead of the most current early detection methods because of the points you brought up, because it has all this imaging. Well, two to five years is significant. It's huge. and, and, and it, That's like game changer. For the patient, also for the industry, because it's a lot cheaper to intervene and treat you early on in that than it is later on, right? It's less invasive for you. It's, well, it's clearly. You know, so, so How does the AI know? Like specifically, can you break that down? Uh, without, uh, so full disclaimer, not a lawyer, not a doctor. Uh, for entertainment I may occasionally <laughs> play one on TV. Um, what I understand it's doing is is an advanced form of image comparison. So it is it. it is able to, to, to look at the uh, image in non-visible light spectrums. Got it. So the doctor can only see the light spectrum they can see. So, you know, colors, you know, uh, basic light 
uh, where the computer can look at, say, infrared or magnetic or other, other you know, spectrums of imaging. And it's able through patterning to detect when a potential spot, if you will, yeah. uh, has enough indicators of potential precancerous uh, that they're able to, to say, hey, you know what, we think this might be a thing. And if at the very minimum, start keeping a closer eye on it. So instead of coming in for your next scan, say in five years, you might come in next year. Hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of good stuff there, although I'd like to advocate that we could do the same in men's health with prostate cancer, uh, but that doesn't get near as enough attention right now. But, you know, I think that's where we're going to see great stuff. The other thing is you're going to see a lot of... Um, interesting things in, in the world of prosthetics and prosthesis. Um, if you look at Neuralink, you know, what's the whole original intent behind Neuralink is, right. is to be able to bypass spinal injury, to be able to, to do things that, that allow people to restore a quality of life. Um, so there's good. My concern is, is around, um, again, I brought this up earlier, losing sight of expertise. So if no one knows how it's doing what it's doing, you fast forward far enough and it's just, um, it's like idiocracy. We just trust that the button's green and therefore it's green. And so, but it's, 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 it's not all bad. There's actually a lot of really amazing stuff um, that some of it's emerging, some of it's emerged, but it all goes back to that we need as a, as a people to kind of say, hey, if we're gonna use it for things like diagnosing, we probably want to scrutinize it a little bit more aggressively than if it's making my kid's next coloring book. And that brings up a good point about, you know, I like the comment you made about whether you, uh, too many people are just trusting the computer and the mm -hmm. machine and not getting the expert opinion. Because there is the fine line of, you know, training and going to school versus a LLM, mm -hmm. a large language model, that is like literally teaching itself the same thing in a different way. And where does that line of like expertise and experience, you know, over a machine learning, you know, and you got to question the different pieces as well. Um, well, in compassion and ethics. So I'll, I'll give you a little little secret. Me and some of my friends might be working on poisoning AI, but using ethics and compassion as the poison. All right. How does that work? Uh, so basically, AI poisoning simplistically is giving it. It says it's a cat. I say, no, it's not. It's a dog. It says it's a cat. I say, no, it's not. It's a dog. And I do that enough times and it says, okay, that's a dog. So it's using the same learning, repetitive learning structure that it figured out that a cat was a cat and a dog was a dog. Okay. But using, you know, malice, if you will, right? Right. Where we said, well, that same method, what if what we were injecting was morals and ethics and compassion? Because the one thing it lacks is that it doesn't it doesn't have compassion my doctor may choose to write up a procedure for me that the computer would deem not worth it right doctor says it might not work I, my dad's a great example as a, a survivor of a stage four colon cancer 10 years 15 years now i think um he statistically had no chance yeah they said that's it you got 90 days and he said, well, what can I do? The computer's answer would be nothing, and here's your palliative care. But because he had a doctor that went, I don't really think it's going to work, but it's going to help you to feel better. So they hit him with chemo radiation surgery, and he's here today because of that. And so, you know, that's one area that we really got to think about, especially in medical, especially in warfare, 
you know, there's a reason we want the human to be the one to push the button or pull the trigger. And it's because there, there, there's that human component. And I just have not seen AI yet do that and, and make a illogical decision based on emotion. Sure. And Which is good. I'm not encouraging us to, to, <laughs> to, to do that. But I mean, that brings up another good point that so my mother has Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And as of today in this recording, she is in hospice. And over the last, I would say, six, seven years that we've watched her mentally decline, you know, we as children can't be there every day. And then, you know, she's in assisted living and all these different um, scenarios and doesn't have the ability to interact with people as much. And one thing that I could see value in is if you had an AI robot that could constantly communicate to the loneliness Mm -hmm. of people uh, who feel isolated, um, there is extreme value for this certain age group that just literally requires a lot more attention than, than there's not enough resources available. Absolutely. And I, and you know, I'd like to see something where your mom has that ability and you as the child also then, Hey, what has mom been talking about? And maybe it prompts you so that when you do go to visit, you can pick up on a, on a relevant part of a conversation she was already having to connect better. So I like that. Yeah. I think, (laughs) I think there's a ton of stuff there. Um, what's most important is that again, you have that right to be part of that process. What, what I would hate to see happen is the product comes out, it does the great thing, we all love it, we buy it, but we never ever get to be part of it. We don't get to say what it can and can't do. And, you know, and, and I say that because again, as a, as a you know, hacker, as a cybersecurity professional, I assure you that my days are spent trying to get the things that you want to work the way you want them to work, to work not that way. And when it comes to things like our emotions and our and our relationships i think it just deserves a a higher degree of scrutiny that would be the one thing i would call for is if it is going to cause emotional responses in people as as an ai tool that it should go through an additional level of of rigor and scrutiny to make sure that those security aspects have been accounted for that the quality of the information that it has has been accounted for well wouldn't that go back to your earlier comment about your wife using mm-hmm. AI to uh, formulate her thoughts or even just to get additional feedback. So like right now, these things don't exist, right? There's there's no regulation right? and there's no second degree uh, therapist or some doctor overseeing the kind of responses. Right. And this is where the concern, whether it's, you know, in the chatbot today, it's in uh, uh, Snapchat for uh, children, that there is literally no sort of form of a professional oversight or regulation on what is like best practices that we obviously know in the real world because there's tons of data points. But now that the technology is coming to the forefront and seeping into all of our lives, that you know, what, like who's in charge? Well, and I'll give you this one, mandatory reporter. So if you're gonna introduce uh, an AI into a healthcare setting, okay, all healthcare professionals are mandatory reporters. That's why you get asked if you feel safe at home. 
Oh, sure. So how do you handle that, right? So not to create more areas of concern, but actually to create tangible areas in which we've put so much effort. We are very clear on what mandatory reporting means, and we've got training. So fun thought exercise for all you wizards out there. Uh, If you are a mandatory reporter, build me a GPT for mandatory reporting. Go in and play with it. Start training it because you you can focus it to specific areas. Most of us interact with a very generalized GPT. Uh, it's just the open chat. You go to GP, you know, chat, uh, openai, you know, .com, and you just start typing away. But if you actually go in and build a model, you can start to skew it, and it will not respond to certain questions. And it will, you know, there's ways to do this. Now, we don't through know. Through the beh- training. Through the training. We don't know if behind the covers it's going, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but at least from your interaction. Um, but I'd like to see more folks experimenting with that type of stuff. And because that'll help drive the conversation. Yeah. And I mean, I've even thought about uh, going back to my mother with Alzheimer's is that, you know, AI has lots of different forms and uses, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing that we covered already is that uh, you can take your voice and record it, and then AI can essentially create any conversation using your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then back to the, the the scenario we just had about my mother and having a bot. Well, if the bot was using my voice mm-hmm. and she's listening to her own son the whole time she's communicating, you know, that I would think would be a game changer of combating loneliness because people of, well, they're all ages really, honestly. But I mean, I'm thinking of senior citizens, but this applies across the board to, to young people, you know, to every, we've all probably been in a place in life where we feel dark, lonely, and not sure how the heck we're gonna get out of this. And, you know, to your point about AI and using these different tools, It'll be interesting for all of us to see where that goes and and how that works in a healthy way. Yeah, and, and I'm excited for that. I, yeah. I think, you know, for me, it feels like the 90s. Feels like the early days of the internet. You know, yeah. we got this great new thing and, you know, I, I just hope we don't repeat what we did uh, with the internet, right? For a lot of us in the early 90s, this was like the most amazing and we're gonna change the world and everything's yep. gonna be so much better. Yep. And to a certain degree it has been, And but there were some unforeseen consequences, some things we didn't really think all the way through. Um, and we're there again. So I think as folks are like, what do I do with AI? Right. Learn a little. See see how it could maybe help you in your life. See what it does that you like and what it does that you don't like. Because nothing will help the engineers make better decisions than that knowledge. Nothing will help the regulators come to an agreement sooner than that public support. And so... You know, kind of the theme here is that call to community action to, yep. to, to engage the podcast, to leave comments, to, you know, let's ask some thoughtful questions um, because I think we're all owed a whole lot of answers. Well, if we get a lot of questions, we're, of course, going to have to have you come back in, <laughs> answer them for the people because, man, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, I cannot say thank you enough for you coming in, take the time out today to talk to me and our audience and just to bring a lot more context about what's going on, what you're seeing as an expert in the field and how we can all be a little bit better prepared. And then of course, with all of these different topics that we covered and we covered quite a bit is that you're gonna have questions, right? And the next question would be, well, how can I shoot my questions to you guys? And so uh, on social media, on Instagram, we are at Ask 
Clever, A-S-K-C-L-E-V-E-R. Um, we are on YouTube, which is called, uh, our channel is called Ask Clever Over Coffee Podcast. And on Facebook, you can find us at Ask Clever. And uh, we are also on TikTok at askclever.ai. So if that isn't confusing enough, you'll find us <laughs> everywhere. And I think the most important thing is that, of course, we want you to like, subscribe, follow. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any of the other platforms, you know, feel free to follow. Because every other week, you're going to see episodes where we're going to bring in industry experts. We're going to ask them some great questions. We're going to take uh, news out of the headlines. We have some great, great guests lined up already uh, to talk about some major things that are happening, you know, in the film industry and the music industry, as well as in city governments. And all of this is going to affect all of us and every single one of you. So I appreciate you listening today to Ask Clever Over Coffee, how I built this, how AI built this, and we are looking forward. Now, part of the one show that I want to end on is we all have to be a little bit nicer and kinder and make this world a little bit better place. So I went into ChatGPT and I asked, what is a one quote that I could use to end the show to kind of leave on a high note? And I really like the one that they came up with. And so I'm going to end it right here with be kind whenever possible because it's always possible from the great Dalai Lama.